Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to FixTheNation.com. Okay. <clears throat> Today, I'm going to try a little something different. As you know, I've been on for about five years doing what I do. And uh, part of that is trying to create solutions politically to where I think we uh, need to go and be. And this week, or this this day, I'm going to be talking about millennials. Now, I know they don't like that term, but I just don't have another word to use to describe them. Um, there's boomers, there's Gen X, there's millennials. It's a broad swath, it's a, it's a title, but move on and get past that, that phobia. That being said, contract with America. Now, this actually predates probably most of the millennials, or they were children when this played out. The, the contract with America back in the early 1990s was what the Republicans ran on to about eight different things. And it was kind of like, okay, one, if you elect us, we will fix these eight things. You know, and they weren't crazy things. They weren't crazy things. No, I'm gonna, I'll read them. Require all laws that apply to the rest of the country also apply to Congress. Wouldn't that be nice? Select a major independent auditing firm to conduct a comprehensive audit of Congress for waste, fraud, and abuse. Three, cut the number of House committees and cut committee staff by one-third. Four, limit the terms of all committee chairs. Five, ban the casting of proxy votes in committee. Six, require committee meetings to be open to the public. Seven, require a three-fifths majority vote to pass a tax increase. Eight, Guarantee an honest accounting of the federal budget by implementing zero baseline budgeting. That was it. That was 19, it was like 1994, pretty sure. That being said, they got their shot. They had their day. It worked. One of my contentions right now, the platforms that, that I kind of speak about is, I think we need a 2.0, a contract with America for 2016. Mine has 12 12 pieces requiring all, all laws passed to be pay-as-you-go and have a true path to pay for it within the budget. Two, require a vote to repeal and replace um, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare as we know it, in the first 100 days. Three, require all laws that apply to the rest of the country also apply to Congress. You heard that one before because we need to revisit that. Four, require a vote on tax reform within the first 100 days. Five, require a vote on immigration reform within the first 100 days. Six, pass a balanced budget on time in year one, and then start the process for a balanced budget amendment. Seven, require an internal audit of the Federal Reserve and clarify the dual mandate role. Eight, require a vote on Supreme Court nominee within the first 100 days. Nine, require a review repeal process to be established to eliminate burdensome regulations. Ten, require a vote on term limits for both Senate and House representatives. That'll never fly, but, you know, we can dream. Eleven, require a vote to repeal, replace Dodd-Frank, the financial package, and include a reestablishment of Glass-Steagall. Twelve, require a vote to consolidate cabinets and departments from 16 down to 8 in the first 100 days. That's my ideas. Okay. The point of a contract with America, it's a little like a promise, a blueprint, if you will. If you give us your trust and you put us in, this is what we will do. Eight things, 12 things, four things, doesn't matter. What they are almost doesn't matter. But it's a little like a, uh, 
an unwritten informal contract. I'll do these eight if you vote me in. So we do our part. We vote them in. What do they do? They go knock, you know, knock out these eight things, you know, as a show of good faith. If that's kept, it's a nice start. Doesn't mean the country's fixed. We have a lot of ills. We have a lot of things to work on. But we do need to have an idea about where our trust will go when we pull that lever. So here's one of my thoughts, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. I really don't want to talk politics tonight specifically about candidates very much. What I do want to do is get into millennials and a millennial contract with America because they think differently than some of us older dogs. Okay? And it's important because it's perspective. Not everyone comes from the same point of view. And you can't say that about all millennials or all boomers or all Gen X or all of any race or all of any gender. You can't make generalizations that are all-inclusive. But you can take away some broad swaths of, I'll call it priorities, about millennials. I work with a million of them. Not a million, but lots. That being said, so I have, I think, a pretty decent read on it. And some of the things the candidates do are a little interesting because I'm curious how it, how it, it spins in that millennial world. But this is some food for thought for you. So that being said, let's jump into it. Contract with America. Let's talk about priority number one. Okay. You heard her, Hillary Clinton, you basement dwellers. Oh, you silly people living in mommy's basement. Okay. Let's get past the embarrassment and the insult that she'd even go there. But that she did gives us an illustration because not completely untrue that people today who are younger, post-college, or even in college, they're kind of forced to stay at home. There's not a lot of jobs to go to that you can exist on straight out of college without living at mom and dad's. It's a, it's a very tough, tough nut to crack these days. So I'm going to start there because Basement Dweller kind of pushed me there. One of my things would be if I were going to write a millennial contract with America, got to focus on economy slash jobs. I'm running an informal poll on Twitter. So if you want to reach me, at Fix the Nation. There's a poll going right now, that kind of stuff. It gives some options on some priorities about, about millennials, about what's important, so to speak. Um, my guess is economy jobs it pops at number one because it kind of makes everything else work, right? One of the things we hear about millennials is they don't really want to own things. They want to share things, share memories, share things. Okay, and part of me gets it from a philosophical standpoint, but I also think there's a reality check piece of it in there. It's a little like shopping at a used clothes store and thinking they're cool. But the reason you actually shop there is you can't really afford new. Like, it's kind of taking poor and making it trendy, right? Right? 
You'd rather not be, not be poor, but you don't mind being trendy if you're poor. So it's kind of a fallback, in my opinion. Not saying it's true or not. I'm saying that's, that's my read. Well, go back to the 60s. The boomers were the hippies, you know, and the, you know, protesters, all that kind of good stuff. And they were going to save the world, change America, blah, blah, blah. And the minute they got out of, you know, that, they, they went on a rampage and got greedy and fought with each other of who's going to have more, you know, possessions. So they started on one end of the continuum and flipped way over. So people change as they get the ability to actually grab that brass ring, so to speak. But I do think economy and jobs are number one. And a couple things in this contract with America, you kind of have to split the two cans apart and see who's going to get you some of these things. Now, forget personalities, forget health issues, forget who scares who and who's crappy about this and who has this corruption. Forget all that junk. It's noise. Who will deliver for you? What's important to you and who's going to get it done? It's going to be the chase. You can, bells and whistles, everything else, you can go through every single gyration about who's crazy, who's this, who's that. But you know what? In the end of the day, who gets it done for you? Talk's cheap, guys. Right? No offense, been there, done that. Oh, pull this leg, it plays jingle bells. Yeah, Come on, you're politicians, you're born liars. Who's, who do you trust to get it done for you? Because if they don't actually get it done, it's not worth the paper any kind of a contract with America is written on, right? So the first thing is job creation. And you might have to spin a faster economy to get that, but there are other ways to go about it. So if you can accelerate the economy... That creates demand. If you have increased demand, you need to offset that with some labor. We have a fairly tight labor supply right now, depending on how you slice it. So as you start to heat the labor market up, that's when weight rages, wages actually start to rise. So part of the ask is you need to make sure the labor pool – isn't diluted, which brings me up to number two, immigration reform. One of the destructive tendencies about immigration, which right now, by the way, is at the highest level since the 1920s, foreign-born people in the U.S., the highest percentage since the 1920s, 40 million people and rising 16% of the population. That's a big chunk of people. By the way, to keep going up and be accelerated if you count refugees that are going to be coming in. Okay? Now, I want you to remember that. Because in the last eight years, coming out of the Great Recession, 
they've been full steam ahead with this. Think about that. We keep letting people in the country, country can't get jobs. I want you to think about the insanity of that. Why would you dilute that pool down? Economically, it makes no sense. Politically, I get why they do it. The economic is, is it, it's heresy. I, I can't fathom why you would do that to fellow Americans. Here's the sad part. You know who it hurts? Minimum wage people, the lower, lowest tier. But then they come back and want to stand up and force minimum wage to go higher, right? I got a tip for you. Do you really want to come out of college and work for minimum wage? Do you really want to even think about minimum wage? Didn't you spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars plus all your studying time and sweat equity to maybe step up in life? Like, why'd you go to college if you're just going to work for minimum wage? Point number two about immigration. The more you dilute the lower wage, the less pressure comes up that pushes up the middle income wage. So, of course, you're going to have devaluation. Why wouldn't you? Why would you pay 50 if you can get the same for 45? Why would you pay 60 if you get the same for 55? So as you start reducing or replacing talent, you just dumb it down money-wise. Why wouldn't you? That's just good business. It's horrible for the people making the wages. And it puts people in a really odd predicament. You actually are better off taking benefits from the government than taking a salary job for, quote-unquote, $25,000, dollars $35,000. Because you can get more benefits than that. And don't have to do a damn thing. Part of the contract with uh, America for millennials should be immigration reform. But here's the kicker. You can't do it and single out people because one of the tweaks about millennials is they're inclusive. They like, in a group sense, to not be picked on or have people that are ostracized. You shouldn't be held what you believe or what you are shouldn't be held against you. So if you're going to deport 12 million people, I don't think that floats with millennials because it's racist and that, 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 that violates their code. So you have to do immigration reform, but you have to get them to understand that that's probably a negotiating chip. It's probably not actually going to happen. Because now you're going to tighten up immigration moving forward, which will help them. But you're also not going to penalize someone because of a certain race. Okay. But it does bring us to point number three. Also very big on the millennial spectrum. They want to be safe. For the most part, pretty insecure group. I don't mean insecure like they don't have confidence, but... Think about their world. They, come, they came of age during 9-11 and have grown up from there. They remember that. They, they are the earliest or the oldest generation, oh, the youngest generations to be impacted by that. The next generation past millennials will, will have heard about it. Most of the millennials were young enough to be impressed, uh, impressionable by that, but 
they weren't old enough to be adults and have to live through it. So you're dealing with a little bit of scar tissue. So you want to be safe. They've also been a little coddled their entire life. Remember, this is the participation trophy generation. They don't like to be singled out. They don't like to be excluded. But they also don't like to be threatened. They don't deal well with that because they've never had to fight for something yet. So they like to be kept safe. And immigration is one of the tickets to a safer America. No matter how you slice it, it just is. You can't have open borders like Europe and not be at risk. You can't. So either you're inherently at risk or you change for the better. Pick one. Okay? I don't think that they really care about trade, but I do think they care about how we deal with other countries in a respectful way, but in a nonviolent way. So I don't think they really want to get involved in wars. One, it puts their generation at risk. Number two is, I don't think they really have an interest in the globe in a geopolitical sense. They absolutely have an interest in the globe in a travel sense or an interest or a shared memory sense. But I don't think they really care what the policies of Australia are. That's not important to them right now. What else can be important to them? What do you think? Maybe price of gas? Energy? Right? Now, some things that I don't think that they think about, that they should think about, that I would include in a millennial contract for America is some kind of plan that deals with the national debt. Let's think this one through. $20 trillion plus $4 trillion at the Fed. That's $24 trillion in debt. Zero chance we have a balanced budget this year. Zero chance we have one next year. That being said, you're already 24 to $25 trillion in debt before you even get to 2018 and possibly enact the first balanced budget by this presidency, the newest presidency. Okay. That being said, why does that matter? I'll give you one little added piece. Remember that Social Security goes bankrupt in 2029 or 2030. That's per the Social Security Administration. Look it up. So in 13 years, that gets to zero. While we're $24 trillion in debt now and climbing, there are a couple ways to go. You can just keep bleeding money, spending money you do not have, or you have to tighten things up. I say it that way because I won't be around long enough to pay this off. The generation, the first one, They'll get stuck with the big check will be millennials. Every dollar we spend that we can't account for goes right on their backs. No matter how you slice it, we are burying that generation. By the way, I have two kids. That's why I fight this. 
because I don't get this. I'm not doing that to them. We need to fix the nation, and that's why I do what I do. So Contract with America needs to address the national debt. I don't mean, oh, we're going to pay it off next year. That's impossible. The plan I wrote to deal with the national debt doesn't get resolved until I think 2048. Now, that sounds like a long, long time out, and it kind of is. It's about 30 years. But get this. You can't do this in a snapshot. You can't do this in a fast way. You can't. It's $25 trillion. Cut it in half. Let me rephrase. Do $500 billion every year. Round number. You're talking 50 years to pay off $25 trillion. 50, five, zero. What does $500 billion represent? You take $18 trillion GDP. It's about where we are right now. So you're looking at roughly 3% of GDP would be sucked away by paying that off. I got a tip for you. We call that a really, really bad recession. Probably a depression. Can't do it. So what's the riddle? Here's the answer to the riddle. Accelerate the economy while you back off government spending. So the tax dollars go, get higher and the spending goes lower. And that surplus, that's where you find the money. It's painless, it's effective, and it's doable. But you have to accelerate the economy. And that, my friends, brings us full circle. Because we start the economy, which goes into jobs, which goes into immigration, which goes into national security, goes into national debt, which brings us back to economy. Because if you don't accelerate the economy, we're at a 1.4% growth right now. Previous, 0.9. Previous quarter before that, 0.8. Got a tip for you. That is anorexic. That is a horrifically slow economy. That's barely growing. That is a Japan stagnation economy. And they've had theirs for 20 plus years. We cannot go down that path. It will bury the millennials. So there are two policies on the table regarding job creation and the economy. One is Trump's, which is a lower taxes, accelerate the economy for growth, build America's economic engine again. Her version, which is very discombobulated, wants to raise taxes on certain people. She believes in Obamacare and expanding that. She believes in expanding entitlements. She bans on expanding regulation. I, what she wants to do is what you would do to slow down an economy. I got a tip. If you enact her policies, not only are you not going to get growth, you're going to put us back into a recession. And that's not how you raise tax revenue to pay things, and that's not how you get the growth you need 
to not feel the pain of paying down the national debt. So if you want to deal with the national debt, there's only one option on the table that's going to work. If you want to go and actually have a career after college and have jobs that you – and think about how you hear this. Think about the job that you want to get, not the job you're stuck getting. Go ask some of the people that already have career jobs. Go ask them if they're – just a simple question. Are you in the job that you want or the job you have to have to pay the bills because the job you really want? They're just, they're just not hiring anymore. And that's a really sad, tragic comment because one of the best things about America is we're a job machine. We're an innovation machine. You want to start a business? Go for it. Let freedom reign. Go nuts. Nope. We have created barriers to starting new businesses, barriers to innovation, We've regulated people out of sole proprietorships. You can't do that. You need to accelerate the economy. Obama will actually be the first president ever not to have one single year of 3% growth. Not ever. Only president. That's crazy land. And that doesn't get it done. So my wish, as we write this millennial contract with America, is to literally understand that. We need to have a faster economy. We need to deal with immigration. I didn't say pick anybody's plan in particular. You've got to resolve it. Other things, and these take little – these are more snapshots, but things like criminal justice – There are things that are inherently unfair about our criminal justice current policy. And if you're a millennial, that should concern you. One, if you're a minority, because you live and and feel it a lot more than anybody else. But if you're a millennial in general, you feel pain for that. You want to solve that. Looks like I actually have a caller. Hmm. Oh, they just hung up. I was going to take it, too. That being said, um, so we have criminal justice reform. We need to reform the inner cities. Get crime down. Get place people safe. Absolutely. Absolutely need to do something like that. Callers back. Let's see. Let's see what they have to say. You're on Fix the Nation. Hey, how's it going today? I'm going pretty well. Who are you and uh, oh, how good. you doing? Not ah, good. Coming from Seattle. I just was figuring. Uh, kind of wanted to know what you felt about Trump getting spanked by Hillary. Well, I'm. I'm going to phrase it this way. I think they both met the bar that they were expected to hit. I think she won the night. I'm curious, and again, I'll speak for me. I am not a Trump train person. I will probably vote Trump as opposed to Hillary, sure. but I don't I don't think he won the night. I'll be curious to see if what he did 
plays into a bigger picture, meaning if he's going to consider all three debates as a broad picture, what he did makes a tactical sense because he has a lot of things he did not bring up. And if that's strategic play, it could be smart. She unloaded on him. So there's not a lot of surprises left. So my my curiosity oh. is when we get to the second debate, if it plays out where it's it's a next step, that will impress me. If it comes out where he's just more of the same, then it was just a lost opportunity. Uh, just quick question though, brother. Like, how do you figure yes, that sir. she unloaded? I kind I kind of wanted to know what you meant by that. Well, I think she brought up a lot of his baggage, you know, things like birther or tax returns or the beauty queen, etc. And there are a lot of things, and I could rapid-fire count them, but I, I think it's kind of been there, done then. There are a lot of things that she has issues with that he didn't bring up in front of her. He could have, but he didn't. I didn't know if that's strategic or if it was just him just not doing Bumbling. it for – yeah, I, I don't know that. Yeah, all right. it's great so talking different. to you. I just I'm about to, to end the show, so have a great night. Thanks for calling in. All right, thanks to all, all right, and too. have a great night. God bless.